Let's pray. Father, help us as we come to your word to understand what you have written. Uh, Illumine us by your spirit that we might see clearly what you have revealed in your word, that we might apply it, that we might um, live in it, and that it might transform us. So help us, cause your spirit to help us see your son in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll begin this morning in Isaiah 40. Uh, This morning we're beginning a a short series on Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. The chapter break is in a somewhat uh, unfortunate position. Remember, the chapter breaks in the Bible are not original uh, to the text, and some uh, enterprising monk decided to break the poem uh, right in the middle of it. So, uh, I'll refer to this whole passage just as Isaiah 53 for for convenient shorthand, but anytime I say that, I'm including the three verses at the end of Isaiah 52. This uh, passage is the last of Isaiah's four servant songs, these prophetic poems about a mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord, poems about what he will do to accomplish God's long-promised deliverance of his people. And it's probably not a surprise that we would look at this passage in the weeks leading up to our remembrance of the Lord's suffering and death and the celebration of his resurrection. Uh, It is without a doubt one of, if not the most transparently clear prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. This is certainly the perspective both of Jesus and His apostles, who routinely used Isaiah 53 as a biblical basis for explaining the death of Christ. We saw it in Acts 8, we read earlier, that it was beginning with this Scripture, Isaiah 53, that Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch the good news about Jesus. 1 Peter 2, if you think back to our series on 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 2, Peter uses quotations of and allusions to Isaiah 53 to describe the suffering of Christ. Romans 10, Paul says that the message of Isaiah, the message that Isaiah announced is in fact the same word of Christ that he proclaims. The New Testament directly quotes all or part of nine of the poem's 15 verses and applies them directly to Jesus. And the remaining verses, while they're not directly quoted, are likewise frequently alluded to in the New Testament. It's not just the New Testament. The earliest post-biblical Christian documents, those written by the first generations of Christians after the apostles, contain a myriad of references to Christ's fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 53. It would seem that Isaiah 53 was of central importance to the earliest Christians, both the apostles and their followers, when they wanted to explain the significance, the death and resurrection of Jesus, this was the passage they went to. And that trend has continued unabated through the history of the church, and it's no wonder because few texts in either testament match Isaiah 53 for its richness and clarity in outlining the meaning and purpose of the death of Jesus, the servant of the Lord. 
Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theological mind America ever produced, once wrote, how plainly and fully does the prophet Isaiah describe the manner and circumstances, the nature and end of the sufferings and sacrifice of Christ in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy. There is scarce a chapter in the New Testament itself which is more full upon it. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, who's the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, wrote similarly that when we read Isaiah 53 today, we do it, do it often in preference to New Testament passages as setting forth the atonement which our Lord made for the sins of others upon the cross. Never, says the simple Christian, was there a prophecy more gloriously plain. From Jesus himself to the earliest days of the church and up through today, Isaiah 53 has had a special and well-deserved place in our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. It's all the more extraordinary because Isaiah 53, while written almost as if it were a blow-by-blow account of the crucifixion, is in fact a prophecy, written hundreds of years before the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a passage that deserves our, our reverent attention and amply repays careful study and contemplation. And so my aim over the next six weeks as we approach the celebration of Easter is to work slowly through this passage, leading us to reflect on different aspects of what it teaches us about the Lord's suffering in death in our place and the implications it has for our lives as His followers. We'll begin this morning by, by setting the passage in its context in the book of Isaiah more broadly, uh, and then, Lord willing, we'll, we'll spend the subsequent weeks leading up to Easter uh, looking at one of the poem's five stanzas, which is about three verses uh, at a time. Now, three verses a week might seem rather slow, and it's true that you could certainly work through this passage much more rapidly than that. We definitely could do it in one sermon. Of course, then I would have five sermons to fill, and that we don't want to do, so we're going to do it in six sermons. But part of the reason is because the point for us, especially with a text like this, isn't just to get through it. Rather, our aim is to behold the glory of God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, and so be transformed. It's to, to linger in worshipful adoration at the foot of the cross. If this pace still seems too slow, I should tell you that in the 17th century, a Scottish pastor named James Durham also preached a series on Isaiah 53, but he didn't do it in six sermons, he did it in 72, including 16 sermons just on verse 1 and 20 just on verse 11. So I am not going as slowly as I could. You're welcome. Now, because we're sort of parachuting into the middle of the book, uh, as we would with any book of the Bible, it's especially important that we get a, a handle on what's going on in the surrounding context. And so, as we, as we often do, the first sermon in the series is about setting the stage for where we are in the Scripture, helping us get our, our bearings so that we can understand it well as we go through it. So, we're going to look first at the kind of the wider context of the passage, Isaiah chapter, chapters 40 to 55. And then we'll, we'll zoom in on the immediate context in Isaiah 52, 7 
through 12, the verses leading up to this poem. And in doing so, we're going to seek to understand how the, the overall message of this part of the book of Isaiah uh, uh, shapes how we understand Isaiah 53, how Isaiah 53 fits into it. It's not just a, a random poem where God has been talking about all sorts of other things for, for 52 chapters, and then He gets to Isaiah 53, and He's like, now, Isaiah, you can close that part of the book. We're going to open a new part. I'm going to start telling you about something completely different about the crucifixion. No, it fits into what He's been talking about. And so, as we, as we look at the context this morning, it will prepare us to reflect on, on this poem piece by piece in the coming weeks. So first, the wider context. Isaiah can be split uh, broadly into two big parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 39. It describes Isaiah's announcements of God's coming judgment uh, on the people of Israel leading up to their exile in Babylon. And these chapters are, are pockmarked with glimpses of, of hope. In large measure, they recount Isaiah's ministry of announcing judgment to a people that God told him from the very beginning would not listen to him. He says, they have ears but do not hear, they have eyes but do not see. And so for this reason, we sometimes refer to Isaiah 1 to 39 as the book of judgment. And we know the story that despite Isaiah's preaching and the preaching of all of the rest of the prophets, the people of Israel would not turn from their sin and their idolatry. And so this section of Isaiah ends in chapter 39 with an ominous shadow of approaching judgment, the coming exile in Babylon, Israel's punishment for breaching their covenant with God. And then in chapter 40, the tone changes. And chapters 40 to 66 are written now with a view to the future proclaiming comfort and hope for God's people. If chapters 1 to 39 are written to confront a people who are hurtling toward exile, a people who have forgotten God, chapters 40 to 66 are written to address a people who are in exile, a people who are tempted to think that God has forgotten them. But now the prophet announces that their deliverance is at hand. And within this second part of the book, Isaiah 40 to 55 is sometimes called the book of comfort because of the hope that it proclaims. So what is this message of hope that chapters 40 to 55 preach in which chapter 53 is, is situated? In broad strokes, we might summarize the message of Isaiah 40 to 55 like this, God promises deliverance in a new exodus from captivity through a new servant of the Lord who will create a new covenant people. God promises deliverance in a new exodus from captivity through a new servant of the Lord who will create a new covenant people. Like I said, in the first half of Isaiah, there were precious flickers of this hope, but they were far off. 
Beginning in chapter 40, God announces that, that His deliverance has come near for His people. We see it in chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, which begin with God instructing His messenger to speak words of consolation to His people, His people who are in exile. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. They are to be comforted, not with the empty promises of the false prophets, but the real, solid consolation of God's own Word. And they are to be comforted because God says, their warfare is ended and their iniquity is pardoned. Their exile from God is coming to an end. So there's this glorious declaration of good news. Behold your God. The herald says, Behold the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him and He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arms. God has not forgotten or abandoned His people. He Himself is coming to rescue them. And so the herald of God's salvation cries out in verse 3, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And this Poetic imagery, God returning to, to, to rescue His people and creation itself adjusts to make His way easy. The valleys are filled in, the mountains are made low, the uneven ground becomes level. To people yet in exile, this sounds like wonderful news, but could it be true? Because all appearances point to the contrary. The herald of God's salvation then declares the firm foundation for this promise, telling them that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Whatever else is seen, heard, trusted in, relied upon can be blown away like chaff, but God's word, God's word alone, God's word of promise can be relied upon as truth. And that will be important for us moving forward because the way that God enacts this deliverance, the way He brings it about, will be paradoxical. It will defy human wisdom and expectation. It will actually appear not to be deliverance, but defeat. And yet, the Word of our God will stand forever. As he says in chapter 55, at the close of this section, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, God promises this deliverance to his people, and he does so using something his readers would have been intimately familiar with. God's promised deliverance is, is cast in the mold of the Exodus. 
And so back in Exodus 6-6, God told the people what He was going to do in the, the first Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. Just before Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh for the first time, God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And now in Isaiah 40 to 55, God does the same thing. He he announces to his people beforehand that he is going to bring them out from their captivity. He's going to deliver them from slavery. He's going to redeem them with an, with an outstretched arm. We read it earlier in Isaiah 40. It says, the Lord comes and his arm rules for him. And just as God's people were rescued out of captivity in Egypt through God's great power, so too God's people will now be redeemed from captivity in the same way. God is working to bring about a new exodus. There are a few places in these chapters where this exodus language and imagery is especially prominent in describing God's promised deliverance. One is Isaiah 43, if you want to turn there. Isaiah 43 Verse 16, and there we read, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So here we have the Lord being described in Exodus language, that He made a way through the sea, a path in the mighty waters, referring, of course, to the crossing of the Red Sea by the people of Israel. And as they were pursued by the Egyptian army, chariot and horse, army and warrior, the Lord extinguished, quenched like a wick, referring to the destruction of that army. As Exodus 15 says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host the Lord has cast into the sea. And then verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Some additional Exodus imagery, God giving his people water in the wilderness. Interestingly, God says here, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old, which is sort of ironic given the fact that surrounding this are all of these reminders of what God has done in the past. And you could imagine the people saying, God, if you don't want us to remember the things of old, it would be really helpful if you stopped talking about it. But the idea here is not that He wants the people to forget those things. It's more of one in which the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring about a new exodus. In many ways, it will be like the first one. And yet, it is going to be a new thing, consistent with but not identical to the first one. 
And in fact, a failure to grasp that God is going to bring about this, this deliverance, this new exodus in a way that is, that is markedly different from the first one leads to confusion and astonishment and scandal and even unbelief. People will miss God's work the way God is doing this because they are looking for Him to work in a way that they expect. God says, I'm doing something new. We see the same Exodus language in Isaiah 51. Again, you may want to turn there in Isaiah 51. Here we have the people of Israel calling on God to act in accordance with His promises. Notice how they frame their request. Verse 9. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? There, Rahab is not the, uh, the uh, prostitute in Jericho uh, that uh, believed in the Lord. It's a, it's a poetic image of, of, uh, of an evil serpent. So the Lord didn't cut Rahab into pieces. Uh, different Rahab. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So the people call upon the arm of the Lord, this a poetic personification of God's almighty power to rise up and rescue them as He did in the Exodus. As God worked by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. It's a plea for God to provide salvation that they can clearly not accomplish for themselves. It's a plea for Him to make a way for them to be saved. And as often is the case in biblical prophecy, there is both a near-term fulfillment and a far-term fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment of these words. In chapters 40 to 48, the focus is on the near-term fulfillment, God's people being released from their physical uh, captivity in Babylon. Which is why we read in Isaiah 45 about God using King Cyrus of Persia to bring about the redemption of His people. Cyrus conquers Babylon and allows the Jews to return to their land. And in fact, Cyrus is actually called in Isaiah God's servant and God's anointed. He's called God's Messiah. Isaiah 48 ends with the call for God's people then to go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, and send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock, and He split the rock, and water gushed out. God announces here the release of His people from the physical captivity, the exile in Babylon, 
And note that he does so using this, this Exodus language, giving water to drink from the rock, one of God's miraculous provisions for the Exodus generation in the wilderness. And so, the focus in chapters 40 to 48 is on this immediate need for release from captivity. God's people have been sent into exile for their sin, and now God is promising, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to fulfill those promises that I have made to you. But there's also a far term or an ultimate fulfillment to these words that's in view in this section of Isaiah. And that comes into greater focus in chapters 49 to 55. The exile in Babylon was judgment on Israel for idolatry and sin, but God's redemption of people out of this physical captivity was in effect only treating the symptoms and not the disease. The problem that led them into exile in the first place that they, like all people, were dead in their trespasses and sins, still remained. The real problem that Israel faced was not its physical captivity to a foreign power, but spiritual captivity to sin. That's the case for us as well. Whatever circumstances we face in our lives, whatever temporal consequences our actions or the actions of others create, we must not lose sight of the fact that the greatest problem that we have is our own sin. The Israelites needed to understand that exile was not their biggest problem. The sin that made it necessary was. So it is for us also. And if you don't believe that the biggest problem in your life is your own sin, that the biggest problem in your life is not out there with them but inside with me, that the biggest problem you have is sin, not someone else's sin, but your own sin, then you may have a very skewed perspective on how malignant sin truly is, how great an offense it is to God, how catastrophic the consequences of unforgiven sin are. Like Israel, we need more than just release from negative circumstances. We need more than just improved social and economic conditions. And we certainly need more than a 10-step plan to a better life. We need deliverance from the captivity and condemnation and corruption of our sin. And this is the deliverance that God has been working to accomplish since Genesis 3. And Isaiah 49 to 55 then moves to outline the promise of an even greater deliverance than release from exile in Babylon. Recall the opening promise of Isaiah 40 verse 1, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, her, her physical punishment is over, and that her iniquity is pardoned. Her spiritual captivity is dealt with. So a twofold deliverance. And we find in these chapters, 49 to 55, a greater emphasis being placed on God delivering His people from their spiritual captivity to sin and idolatry, and to do so through this mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord. It actually continues a the theme of the new exodus because if there's going to be a new exodus, then we might 
Well, expect there's going to be a new Moses. Now, interestingly, in chapters 40 to 48, while this figure, the servant of the Lord, shows up a few times, the kind of the Moses figure leading the exodus from Babylon is Cyrus, the king of Persia. But after chapter 48, all mention of Cyrus and Babylon and Persia fall away. And now it seems like we're talking about a different exodus, one one that that parallels this uh, coming out of captivity in Babylon, but one that is ultimate, final, true, an exodus from slavery to sin, an exodus led by a true, ultimate, final servant of the Lord, one whom Moses and Cyrus and others only foreshadowed. As mentioned earlier, Isaiah 40 to 55 contains these four poems about the servant and his work. These have been called the servant songs, the last of which, and the longest, is Isaiah 53. And we learn through these poems that this servant is going to do what Israel did not and could not do itself because of its sin. In fact, in Isaiah 49, the servant himself is called Israel. He is the true Israel standing as the representative for Israel to do what the people could not. We learn in the first of the servant songs in Isaiah 42 that God has has put His Spirit upon Him and that He, the servant, will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. The servant is God's chosen one, the one whom He has entrusted the task of leading this new exodus in establishing righteousness and justice in the earth, not just for Israel, but for the nations. Several times in these chapters we read that the servant's saving work will extend beyond redeeming Israel to all the nations. And so Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, God says to the servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. A passage that is parallel to this in, uh, later in Isaiah uh, 61, Jesus quotes and says, this is fulfilled in me. Again, Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, God says to the servant, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant will not only accomplish deliverance from captivity to sin for the people of Israel, but will do so also for the nations as well, so that God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant's going to create a new covenant people of God who have been released from their slavery to sin, a people made up not only of Jews, but of Jews and Gentiles. It's no wonder that as the New Testament reflects on the inclusion of Gentiles in the covenant people of God, they are frequently quoting Isaiah 40 to 55. 
So the message of Isaiah 40 to 55, broadly speaking, is that God is promising to deliver people, not just Israel, but all people, in a new exodus from captivity through the work of a new servant of the Lord who will create a new covenant people of God. It's the wider context in which we find Isaiah 53. And now let's turn to the more immediate context so we we see where Isaiah 53 fits into the flow of this message. The promises of this ultimate deliverance through a new exodus reaches a crescendo in Isaiah 52, 7 to 12. The verses immediately preceding the main text for this series, Isaiah 53. And these verses form a sort of bookend with the opening verses of this part of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 41 to 11. There's a lot of same uh, language and themes, a lot of overlap. Isaiah 52, 7, we are poetically and prophetically transported forward to the day when this salvation will not just be promised, but announced as an accomplished fact. And just like in chapter 40, we again have this poetic imagery of a herald bringing the announcement of good news to God's people, who are, are pictured here as if they are being held captive in a besieged city. And suddenly a messenger appears on the hills overlooking the city announcing that the king has returned. He has broken the siege and he has defeated the enemy that held them captive. Verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The city guards see and hear this announcement of good news, this gospel, that God has come to establish His reign and rescue His people, and they rejoice. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And this redemption has been accomplished, we read in verse 10, by the arm of the Lord. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. This recalls the Lord's outstretched arm by which He brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And this language of the arm of the Lord comes up several times in Isaiah 40 to 55. Back in Isaiah 40, we read, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Or Isaiah 51, where He says, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait." And in one respect, the arm of the Lord is just another way of poetically describing God's strength, His almighty power. But as we read through Isaiah 40 to 55, we find that the arm of the Lord is not merely this sort of abstract idea of power. It's God's personal action. The arm of the Lord begins to sound like a person, not separate from God, and yet somehow distinct. If we could borrow language from the Apostle John, we might perhaps say that the arm of the Lord is both with God 
and is God. In these chapters, we see repeatedly that God is working to bring about His deliverance through both the servant of the Lord and the arm of the Lord. And what's even more interesting is that as these chapters progress, the identity of the servant of the Lord and the identity of the arm of the Lord move closer and closer together like a, like a Venn diagram until they basically overlap completely in Isaiah 53, as we'll see. That's significant because in the first exodus, God redeemed His people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and He did so through the work of His servant Moses. Later in Isaiah 63, we'll read that, that in the exodus, God caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. We might say that it was the arm of the Lord at work alongside, through the servant of the Lord. But here, in this new exodus, the servant of the Lord and the arm of the Lord are not just closely working alongside one another, they're identical to one another. The arm of the Lord is not just at the right hand of the servant, the arm of the Lord is the servant of the Lord. The very power of God, not just at work through, but embodied, we might even say incarnate, in this servant. The servant of the Lord is the Lord Himself in all His power come to redeem His people. And not just Israel, for as we read in verse 10, the Lord's holy arm has acted before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. As a result of this work, the command is issued for them to get up and go out from captivity. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. That means go out from this besieged city in which you have been captive. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The siege is broken. The enemy is defeated. Unlike the first exodus when the people went out only to be pursued by Pharaoh's army, they were commanded to depart in haste. Now in this new exodus, the arm of the Lord has conquered. The enemy has been so utterly defeated that they are told in verse 12 that they do not need to go out in haste. They do not need to go out in flight because the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. There's a totality, a finality, and a security to this deliverance from captivity to sin that far exceeds either the exodus from Egypt or the return from the Babylonian exile. And this is good news of happiness indeed, a new exodus accomplished through the work of a new servant, the, the arm of the Lord Himself, which has created a new people, redeeming both Israel and the ends of the earth. But how? How has the siege been broken? How has the enemy been defeated? How has God's servant brought this salvation and accomplished this redemption that allows the herald to publish peace and bring good news of happiness? How has God bared His holy arm before the eyes of the nations? How have you done it, Lord? How has the king conquered and established His reign and released His people from captivity? That's the question that Isaiah 53 explains. And Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll meditate on this gloriously rich passage together. 
but we will find that the answer is unlike anything that anyone would have expected, either in Isaiah's day or, in fact, in Jesus' day. God is going to deliver people in a new exodus through a new servant. He's going to create a new people, but it will be in the most astonishing, paradoxical, upside-down way imaginable. It will not be in the manifest power of signs and wonders and great acts of judgment like the Lord did when He redeemed His people from Egypt. There will not be plagues. There will not be uh, these massive uh, earth-shattering miracles. No, a, a, a new exodus not only means a new servant and a new covenant people, it also means a new Passover and a new spotless lamb and God redeeming not by signs and wonders but by suffering, not by demonstrable power but by apparent weakness. God says, do you want to know how my glory is going to be revealed? Do you, do you want to know how my arm has accomplished my salvation before the eyes of the nations? Do you want to know how I have redeemed and comforted my people? Do you want to know? Then behold my servant. And that's where we'll begin in Isaiah 52, 13, Lord willing, next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for what you have uh, inspired, written for our instruction that we might have hope and encouragement through the Scriptures. We pray that as we meditate on these precious words about the Lord Jesus, that, that you would encourage, strengthen, comfort us, assure us of your promises in Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.